0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The International Court of Justice has ruled that Japan must stop all whaling off Antarctica... It's a ruling scientists say will help species hunted to near extinction bounce back.
1: Overall, one would say that uh, the populations of whales are doing reasonably well. They're recovering where they're provided adequate protection. And we're hoping that the court decision will be one more step in the recovery of whale populations in the Southern Ocean and elsewhere in the world's oceans.
0: Also, the National Forest Service says climate change ultimately threatens sugar maples, but some maple syrup producers don't buy it.
2: Oh, you hear about that all the time, you know, and, and the global warming. and but I- I think that sugar maple is a very hardy tree and very adaptable. So I think, under slight changes and so forth, it'll adapt.
0: And more this week on Living on Earth. Stick
2: around.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt,
0: smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. There is good news this week for whales, especially those in the seas off Antarctica. The International Court of Justice has ordered Japan to stop what it found to be commercial whaling under the guise of scientific research. Though Japan signed on to the International Whaling Commission ban nearly 30 years ago, it kept on hunting. In 2010, Australia filed charges at the International Court alleging Japan was in gross violation of the ban. For some analysis, we called up Andy Reid, professor of marine biology at Duke University. He's a former member of the Science Committee of the International Whaling Commission and joins us now from North Carolina. Welcome to Living on Earth, Andy.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what do you make of this news, uh, this court decision? How big of a deal is this? It's a pretty important decision. It's a very clear ruling from the international court that uh, Japan has to cease and desist its Antarctic whaling program. Those of us who have been involved in this issue for a long time were looking for clarity from the court, and we got it. It will stop immediately any research whaling that the Japanese government had anticipated conducting, and uh, it leaves open a lot of questions about what Japan will do. They have in the past threatened to leave the International Whaling Commission and to operate outside it. Whether or not they choose to do so, we'll find out in the coming months and and perhaps years. But uh, it's a clear and decisive step forward in terms of the management of whales in the Antarctic.
0: But give us a little history lesson here, uh, Professor. How were the Japanese able to continue uh, whaling after the 1986 whaling ban uh, went into effect?
1: There are two routes to continue whaling. One is to file an objection to the moratorium that, as you indicated, came into place in 1985-1986. And several countries filed objections to that change, uh, including uh, Iceland and Norway, which continue to hunt whales commercially today. Japan withdrew its objection to that change under U.S. pressure, and so was no longer able to engage in commercial whaling. But there is a provision within the convention that allows countries who are members of the International Whaling Commission to kill whales for the purposes of scientific research. The term scientific research is not ever defined in the convention itself. But Japan engaged in a very large scale, two large scale projects actually, one in the North Pacific and one in the Antarctic, in which they have killed more than 10,000 whales over the last couple of decades. The killing of those whales was, according to the government of Japan, for the purposes of scientific research. But the meat that was generated from killing those whales was sold on the market in Japan. And so many of us, many independent observers, have argued that this really is commercial whaling under the guise of science rather than a true scientific research program. And the court agreed with us uh, in its decision.
0: Now, this ruling only applies to the Southern Ocean. What about Japanese whaling in the Northern Pacific?
1: Right. You're correct. The ruling does not apply to the North Pacific. I think most of us believe that the precedent is strong enough that Japan will also stop its North Pacific program. But that's not what the legal case says. And so it's possible that Japan will continue to take whales, special permit catches in the North Pacific. Uh, although it seems unlikely to me that they could continue to do that.
0: Now, what were the kinds of whales that the Japanese were hunting?
1: Three species of whales were listed under the Japanese Antarctic Research Program, uh, mostly minke whales. The quota of minke whales taken, the smallest of the baleen whales taken, was about 850 a year. There were two other species, larger species, fin whales and humpback whales. And those three species were all listed under the program, although only minke whales and fin whales were taken. Japan never actually killed any humpback whales as part of its research program.
0: Now, what about Norway and Iceland, where whaling is still practiced? How do those countries compare to Japan in terms of their whaling haul?
1: The numbers of whales taken by both Norway and Iceland are smaller than the number of whales taken by the Japanese programs. They focus mostly on minke whales, the smallest uh, baleen whale, and the species for which the meat is most highly prized. But uh, it's possible that those numbers could increase if Norway and Iceland decide to try and fill the Japanese market uh, with products from their hunts.
0: What kind of legal pressure, if any, does this put on Norway and Iceland to get out of the whaling business as well?
1: None, really. They have a legal right to conduct whaling under the uh, convention. They filed objections to the moratorium when it came into place in 1985, 1986. And so their legal position is clear. And unless uh, they decide as a matter of either domestic pressure or international pressure to stop whaling, they can continue to harvest whales commercially.
0: What other uh, potential ripple effects are there here from this decision?
1: We know that the convention for the regulation of whaling only pertains to the great whales, to the large baleen whales and sperm whales and one or two others. So the smaller cetaceans, the dolphins and porpoises, are not covered. And we know when the moratorium first came into place in 1985 and 1986, the numbers of those animals, the smaller dolphins and porpoises taken in Japanese fisheries, went up considerably considerably. So it's possible that we'll see an increase in the numbers of those animals harvested, both in the harpoon fishery and in the dry fishery. Dry fishery was the fishery that was portrayed in the movie The Cove. And there is considerable conservation concern about the status of dolphins and porpoises taken in those fisheries. So that could be an adverse consequence of the ruling.
0: So, Andy, in general, how are whales doing around the world these days?
1: It depends on the species and it depends on the population. Many populations of whales are recovering from past overharvest, past uncontrolled harvest. So in the Southern Ocean we're seeing populations of blue whales and humpback whales recovering rapidly, um, although they're still very small compared to what they were before the harvest started. Other whale populations are not doing so well. North Atlantic and North Pacific right whales are still tiny populations, maybe 50 North Pacific right whales and perhaps 500 North Atlantic right whales. But overall one would say that uh, the the populations of whales are doing reasonably well. They're recovering where they're provided adequate protection. And um, we're hoping that the court decision will be one more step in the recovery of whale populations in the Southern Ocean and, and elsewhere in the world's oceans.
0: Andy Reid is a professor of marine biology at Duke University. Thanks so much for taking this time today, Professor.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: The weather phenomenon known as El Nino is likely on its way back. And it could be back in a big way over the next year or two, thanks to conditions researchers are now observing in the tropical Pacific Ocean. And if El Nino does return, it could intensify droughts and storms around the world. To lay out all the signs and symptoms, we turn to Kevin Trenberth. He's a distinguished scientist in the Climate Analysis section at the National Center for Atmospheric Research.
4: El Ninos occur about every three to seven years. And in between times, there is a buildup of heat in the Western Pacific the trade winds blow across the Pacific, piling up warm water in the western Pacific. After a period of time, the ocean sort of says, well, there's too much warm water piling up here over by Indonesia, and I'm going to have an El Nino event. And so some of this warm water starts to spread back across the Pacific, and uh, the winds change as that happens. Then once it gets rolling, continues for nine months to a year.
0: What are the signs you're seeing right now that suggest an El Nino event is underway?
4: Firstly, this is the right time of year for the transition. The, the main time when uh, El Nino tends to get started is March, April, May. And so this is certainly the time to watch. The second thing is that there have been a quick reversal of the normal easterly trade winds to brief westerly wind bursts.
0: And what about water temperatures? What are you seeing there that might uh, suggest that an El Nino is starting?
4: Well, certainly the upper layer of the ocean, down to what oceanographers call the thermocline, is quite warm, and and some of the temperature anomalies there are up to about 8 degrees Fahrenheit above normal. The last time we've seen those kind of numbers is 1997-98, during the big El Nino event. That's the time when El Nino really came into the American vernacular (laughs)
0: So, tell us what type of weather might we expect then if this turns out to be a Fuerte El Nino?
4: Well, the first thing is this coming summer. If it warms up sufficiently by uh, July, then it means that the Pacific is where the main action is. At the same time, there's a lot less action in the Atlantic, and so a subdued Atlantic hurricane season is on the cards in that case. Uh, 1997, as a case in point, is the most active hurricane season ever on record. Uh, The places where the hurricanes and and the typhoons tend to occur is a bit different. There's a greater risk of a hurricane going into Hawaii or into Tahiti. And then as we go into the wintertime, there's much greater odds of uh, storms barreling into Southern California, and uh, some parts of those continue across the South, even to Florida, much wetter conditions in Florida, and at the same time, uh, warmer and uh, somewhat drier conditions in the Northern Plains states.
0: Now, to what extent is this good news for California? California's been really tight on water these days, a lot of drought. There's a big El Nino. How much wetter might California become?
4: Well, this is especially, in some ways, good for Southern California. It can end up replenishing a lot of their water resources and filling up reservoirs and so on. At the same time, some of these storms can be quite severe. There's likely to be coastal erosion. Uh, There can also be flooding events. So the ability to manage these kind of extremes, the short-term extremes, for the benefit of the longer-term water use comes into play.
0: Now, what about the rest of the world? How does this affect uh, drought uh, in places like Brazil and Africa, Australia?
4: The first place, Australia, it greatly increases the risk of drought there. And they've already had the warmest year on record in 2013 with uh, quite a lot of reports of wildfires. And uh, with El Nino, this greatly exacerbates that kind of a problem. It also affects uh, Southeast Asia and Indonesia and increases the risk of fires in those places, as well as uh, especially the northeastern part of uh, Brazil and, and parts of Africa are very much uh, greater risk of drought. At the same time, places like Peru and Ecuador are in potentially in for deluges and flooding and uh, big changes there.
0: Now, as I recall, back in 1998, there was this huge set of ice storms. In the East, and the finger was pointed at El Nino.
4: Yes, there were some unusual conditions, and so it was relatively warm in many parts of the world because one of the things that happens during El Nino is this heat spreads across the Pacific. It comes into the atmosphere, mainly in the form of evaporative cooling of the ocean and more moisture in the atmosphere, and so that vigorates storm systems and weather systems, but it ends up heating the atmosphere, and there's a mini-global warming. 1998 was the warmest year on record. In winter, we still have uh, very cold continental conditions, of course, but uh, sometimes this warm air can meet up with that, and uh, one of the consequences in, I think it was January of uh, 1998, was a major ice storm, one of the worst on record uh, in New England and uh New York and especially in Canada and uh, it uh, caused uh, major dislocations it brought down the whole poles and uh and structures that the wires were suspended on
0: to what extent do you think that uh, climate change uh warming the world's oceans is a factor in in more frequent
4: or stronger El Nino events this is very hard to tell and it's a very important question what we can say is that when an El Nino happens because of climate change, the floods and the droughts in different places around the world tend to be stronger than they otherwise would be. And so uh, those are often things which are quite difficult to manage and they can cause big disasters. You know, we've just uh, seen the kind of things that can happen uh, in the Seattle area with this big mudslide, for instance, with some loss of life there. And so, uh, yes, watch out for these kind of things.
0: So El Nino comments, drop yourself in, huh?
4: Uh, Well, yes, uh, as I say, the technology we have nowadays means that we should be able to get a pretty good handle on whether this is really going to happen and, and what it looks like. I think in about a couple of months or so, we're almost guaranteed that this next year will be rather different than the last three or four that we've had, at least.
0: Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished senior scientist in the climate analysis section at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Thanks so much for taking this time with us today, Kevin.
4: You're most welcome.
0: Coming up, global oil and gas giant ExxonMobil thinks the risks of climate change are real and plans to keep on drilling. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama has declared the devastating March 22nd landslide in the Cascades a major disaster, making more programs and recovery aid available to Washington State. Some 50 people are dead or missing, most of them from a small community tucked into a bend in the Stillaguamish River. Ashley Ahern of the public radio collaborative EarthFix has been covering the disaster since it happened. She reports that the danger of landslides was known, but that didn't stop local officials from allowing homes to be built there.
5: Bonnie Brown sent me a picture of the cabin her parents built on the Stillaguamish River in the 70s.
6: And it was just a very beautiful place with beaver ponds and streams and meadows and trails through the woods. The kind of place that kids dream of.
5: She also sent me an aerial photo of her cabin after the tragic landslide.
6: And there's some grass around the cabin on three sides left, but uh, other
5: than that, it's... Her voice trails off. The second picture shows giant gray fingers of rock and muck and debris encircling the little log cabin. The slide came down from the cliffs across the river, then up the other side, covering her neighborhood. Brown's family wasn't at the cabin when the slide occurred. She said over the years, her father and neighbors worried about flooding as the Stillaguamish meandered back and forth across its bed. Landslides weren't at the top of the list of concerns, but maybe they should have been. Dan McShane is a geologist in Whatcom County. He said when he heard there was a landslide on the Stillaguamish, he wasn't surprised.
6: The Stillaguamish setting, the geologic units are particularly sensitive relative to, say, a real solid granite bedrock somewhere else. And so the potential for the failure is much greater.
5: Towards the end of the last ice age, the Stillaguamish River was a giant lake blocked in by a glacier. It filled with soft lake sediments—sand, clay, gravel—the kind of stuff that falls apart when it's wet. And in recent years, scientists are getting a clearer and clearer picture of the scars on this landscape. Modern imaging technology called LIDAR shows 3D representations of the Stiliguamish riverbed today. It looks like a little kid took a toy dump truck with a backhoe and just moved along the river, taking giant clamshell bites out of the slopes. Those bites show where the landslides have occurred in the past. McShane says anyone can look at maps and get information like this if they have some time to surf the web.
6: You know, I mean, it's public, but whether it gets disseminated to the people that make land use decisions and planning for geologic hazards doesn't necessarily always happen.
5: The disconnect between the science and county officials and planners may have cost some of the residents of Steelhead Drive in Oso, Washington, their lives. A landslide occurred in the same place on the Stillaguamish in 2006, causing flooding. Snohomish County permitted five new homes to be built there that year, and another one in 2009. The Snohomish County Planning Office said they couldn't comment as to why those permits were issued, because they're busy with the recovery effort. McShane and others have said the size and reach of this landslide in particular was unprecedented. No two counties are the same when it comes to incorporating things like new geological mapping technology into their planning or permitting process. A lot of that variability stems from money, says Scott Burns. He's a geologist with Portland State University.
6: We can make landslide hazard maps just like the earthquake hazard maps, just like the flood hazard maps. But very few of them have been done because we are in a cutback government mode.
5: The Washington Department of Natural Resources has detailed maps, though they're not as detailed as some of the latest 3D imaging. Some counties, like Cowlitz and Jefferson, are incorporating new landslide data into their websites. Burns says there's a ways to go, and the government needs to invest in hazard maps and use them in the permitting process. When Bonnie Brown's father built her cabin in the 70s, the mapping technology we have today didn't exist. But technology or not, she has no plans to rebuild.
6: The land and what we enjoyed around there is gone. I don't know know, how long it'll take for nature to recover, but what what was really our our family's past is gone now.
0: That's EarthFix reporter Ashley Hearn, and she joins us on the line now from Seattle. Welcome, Ashley. Hey, Steve. So we're two weeks from the disaster now. Do officials have any more concrete information about what caused this horrible slide?
5: Well, initially they were looking at the actual geology of the area and seeing how the toe of the slide was sliding into the Stillaguamish River, and the river was sort of eating away at the base of it. So that was, you know, allowing the slide to keep going and kind of destabilizing that earth. But there are other factors that were at play here as well. We've had a lot of rainfall this season. In March, particularly, it broke records in Seattle. And Darrington, the town, the nearest town that has a weather monitor system, had almost 19 inches of rain in March, which is, I think, the second highest amount of rain on record for that town. So there's the rainfall. And we know that heavy rains contribute to these deep-seated landslides. They destabilize the landscape. And then the other factor is logging. The State Department of Natural Resources permitted some logging to happen above the slide area. uh, And the timber company, this is Grandy Lake Forest Associates, cut outside of their allotted area. So they were not allowed to be logging as close to the top of the slide as they did. And some people are saying that may have contributed to the loss of slope stability there as well. How soon
0: will we know if there's any idea of what will happen to that area of of that river valley?
5: You know, I think that people are still getting their heads around the human tragedy and the scope of it. I mean, the amount of earth that is just covering this area makes it hard to picture where you would even put a house if you were going to try to rebuild. You know, the question of who builds on this plot, that's probably too soon to say I would be surprised if that happens anytime soon and furthermore, if it's permitted ever again.
0: Now, Ashley, you've been reporting on another rural community that lives within the constant danger of landslides but hasn't yet had any major uh, disaster or any loss of life. What did you learn about the people who choose to live there?
5: Yeah, I want to take you to um, another community just uh, north in the Cascade Mountains as well. This is a community along the Skycomish River, and it's called the Mount Index River Sites. And this is a group of uh, kind of a loose community of, of houses, cabins mostly, people who've lived out there for decades along this beautiful stretch of river near um, a place called Sunset Falls. And they have slides there a lot. The road washed out in 2009, um, and this winter they have been absolutely hammered. And the interesting thing about this community that I found is that they're on a private road, so they're not getting any state dollars to help with the road maintenance. So it's on the community, and the people that live in this community don't have a lot of money. And so spending more than $60,000 on this road is, is really, you know, they've come to the point where the landslides won and they're not going to be probably rebuilding this road anytime soon and so half of the community is cut off from access to Route 2 and they're, the people are getting to their homes using ATVs so I went out there to just ask what is it about this place that, that draws you here and I met uh, a guy named Lauren Brayton and his family has owned land right next to Sunset Falls on the Skykomish since 1972 and when I caught up with him he was actually chopping up wood and he's, he's building a cabin right next to the slide area and I asked him if he'd compare his community to Oso, and this is what he said:
7: uh, "You know, for all the people here, there was personal property loss, and there was real estate loss. We had no deaths. So, I compare this to Oso. I feel for them more than I do for us. We'll recover.
5: Well, I mean, and if there were people in these houses,
7: they would have been gone.
5: Does that make you scared as a homeowner? Are you ever? No, no.
7: When it's time to go, you'll go." <laughs> Well, like yesterday, I was up working on here and it slid below me. The only concern I had was getting my tools in and getting them safe for the night because I'll always work my way out.
0: Wow, Ashley, that's quite a response. Um, how are other people reacting?
5: Yeah, Lauren wants to retire there, and he loves the natural beauty and the sanctuary. But, you know, down that same dirt road, you'll meet a variety of people and different perspectives. Uh, I met a guy named Ben Van Dusen, and he's lived out there for about 20 years. And the Oso landslide has him a bit more worried about the land and and really what it's capable of doing. His house has flooded before, and the road has washed out completely into the river near his house in the past. Um, But he says for him, there aren't a lot of options.
7: Right right now, today, I am stuck. I yeah, turn the hot water off. I don't have TV. I don't have Comcast. I don't have any of that. I get uh, DVDs from the library. So I'm I am stuck. If that's a dangerous slope, too bad. This is it.
5: He thinks the government should buy the homeowners out. All the people that live down this dirt road, he thinks this should be a place to visit, not a place to live. There's a lot of hiking in the area, a lot of outdoor recreation opportunities, rafting, that sort of thing. And he said, you know, if I had the choice, if I had an infusion of cash, I would probably move someplace safer.
0: Now, Ashley, you're going to stick around the uh, slide area in these coming weeks and do some more reporting. What are you going to look into?
5: Right. I'm going to be heading up this week, um, talking to uh, folks at the Environmental Protection Agency. They're going to be on the ground looking for things like hazardous materials. What kind of stuff comes out of a disaster like this and potentially ends up in the river? Um, I'm also going to be looking into questions of planning and growth management and really what other communities in the state are vulnerable and may not know it. And then, you know, the other thing is, how did the Department of Natural Resources not follow up or reprimand this timber company when they were cutting outside of their allotted area? This is a tragedy that scientists and policymakers are going to be analyzing for years. And, and my hope is that that we learn something from it and that we never forget these people and what they lost.
0: Ashley Heard reports for the Public Media Collaborative EarthFix. Thanks so much for taking the time, Ashley.
5: Thanks for having me, Steve.
0: The International Energy Agency, the IEA, says that two-thirds of all fossil fuel reserves will need to stay in the ground to stop the earth warming more than two degrees Celsius. Well, last week we talked with Danielle Fougere, the president of a shareholder advocacy group called As You Sow. Her group filed shareholder resolutions with major fossil fuel companies asking them to disclose their plans to cope with potential carbon regulation. ExxonMobil is the world's largest investor-owned gas and oil company and the first to respond. So as you so withdrew its shareholder resolution, and ExxonMobil released a detailed outlook which acknowledges the reality of climate change and the possibility of future carbon regulation. But Ken Cohen, vice president of public and government affairs for ExxonMobil Corporation, believes demand for fossil fuels will remain strong. He spoke to us from Irving, Texas.
8: The risk of climate change is clear, and it warrants action, but it doesn't exist as a risk in isolation. We have to manage the risk of climate change while at the same time that we provide economic opportunity, uh, that we lift billions of people out of poverty. 1.3 billion people in the world do not have access to electricity. People around the world want the same things that you and I take for granted here in the United States. They want access to modern forms of energy. They would like to heat their homes. They would like to have air conditioning. They would like to have modern forms of transportation. And all available sources of energy are going to be needed to meet this growing demand. And both the IEA and ExxonMobil's outlook predict that carbon-based fuels are going to provide approximately 75% of global energy needs out to the year 2040. Now, many
0: of the world's leaders, major world leaders, including President Obama, have agreed that in order to keep global temperature rise below 2 degrees centigrade and avoid the worst consequences of climate change, we need to reduce our carbon emissions by as much as 80% by 2050. What do you make of that?
8: we factor into our energy outlook and we expect additional regulations that would apply to hydrocarbon fuels. In fact, we use a what I would call a proxy cost for carbon regulation in our annual energy outlook. And in fact, going out from today to the year 2040, we use as a proxy cost uh, about $80 a ton of carbon. Now, when you think today, the European trading scheme, emissions trading scheme, has an 8 to $10 a ton price affixed to it. We are, I think, being very prudent in our planning process in taking into account additional regulation
0: on our business. So if I understand you correctly, uh, and looking through your report, it would seem that it would take carbon being a couple of hundred dollars a ton to uh, severely restrict the use of fossil fuels, that uh, you see that as an unlikely outcome at this point. Well,
8: again, remember we're managing. We need to address the the challenge of climate change in the context of other pressing societal challenges, and one of the most pressing that the world is still dealing with is the economy, the strength of the economy, and governments are proceeding very cautiously in the application of regulations that are going to impose additional costs on consumers.
0: You point out it's really important to help less developed societies uh, move forward in the modern world. Um, But what about the question of using alternative energy to uh, fuel that development as opposed to uh, energy containing a lot of carbon?
8: Yeah, that's a, a good question. And our outlook contemplates the continued growth of renewable energy on a global basis. And in fact, in our outlook, you will note that the fastest growth rate is attributable to renewables like wind and and solar. But even with that almost heroic growth rate, really, for renewable fuels, um, we still project that energy demand will be met. By over 75% of it is going to be coming from oil, gas, and coal. And that is because of the massive size of the global energy system and the the fact that global population today is around 7 billion people. In the year 2040, there'll be about 9 billion people. And the 9 billion consumers of energy want the same things that you and I take for granted.
0: So what about the irony that... Uh... The world's poorest people in developing countries, those that you say need uh, this increase in energy, are at most risk uh, from the threats of climate change.
8: The way that we as society address environmental challenges is through economic development and technology. And of the 1.3 billion people in the world that don't have access to electricity, those societies need to continue to develop economically so that they are able to take on the environmental challenges that they face. The solutions to our to the problems that we're dealing with have at their bedrock economic development and technology application, developing technology and applying technology.
0: So look into your crystal ball, um, Ken Cohen, for me and tell me what you expect Exxon to look like in the year, say, 2050.
8: Well, um, I believe <laughs> we're a company that employs uh, 18,000 scientists and engineers. And uh, I've been with the company for over three decades. And the things that we're doing today from an engineering and a technology standpoint are amazing. We have a number of very, very bright and talented researchers that are focusing on, on what the future may look like.
0: So uh, what does that mean for your solar and wind portfolio?
8: Well, so far we have we, we used to in, it's interesting in the uh, in my career the company actually was a large player in solar energy But we got out of that business um, a a number of years ago because we couldn't make money in solar energy. If we see an opportunity that matches up well for the company, then I'm sure that we will consider getting back into that space. But right now, we have our hands full doing uh, two things, which is producing the energy that the world is running on today. But while we're doing that, continuing to focus on reducing the uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions footprint associated with that uh, activity.
0: Ken Cohen is Vice President of Public and Government Affairs for ExxonMobil Corporation. Thanks for taking the time with me today, Ken.
8: Steve, thank you for uh, the opportunity to talk about these issues.
0: Coming up... Seas rise, islands drown, acid oceans kill sea life, climate change, no fun. An oceanographer distills the UN's climate report into haiku. That's just ahead here on
3: Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. Supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. And Gilman Ordway, for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time now for our weekly foray beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra, the publisher of DailyClimate.org and Environmental Health News. That's EHN.org. He's on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. I'm going
7: to brag a little bit this week on the work of two colleagues of ours at Daily Climate. Uh, First, our reporter, Lindsay Conkle, did a story on a peer-reviewed effort to learn more about the climate record through artwork. It was just published in the journal Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics, And in the paper, researchers from Greece and Germany analyzed 124 sunsets painted by European artists recently and as far back as 500 years ago. The researchers noticed a consistent pattern that whenever paintings were made after a big volcanic eruption, the sunsets were painted redder and more intense.
0: It's not just that those German romantics got more intense. uh, It's telling us that there really are scientific blanks that we can fill in using art, huh?
7: No, it's not the German romantics, but what it is is more particulates in the air means brighter sunsets. But that same volcanic debris can also cool the planet, and it can also make it harder to breathe. The researchers also saw a steady increase in redder sunsets since the Industrial Revolution began.
0: So some evidence both of nature's impact on the atmosphere and humanity's. And uh, you said you have something else from a colleague at The Daily Climate.
7: Right. This week started up Major League Baseball again, and our reporter Brian Binkowski had an opening day, unlikely environmental chat with the boss of the makers of Louisville Sluggers, the classic baseball bats. Ashwood is still the standard bearer for wooden bats used in professional baseball, but a little invader species is eating the ash trees. Uh
0: Uh-oh. Another invasive insect?
7: Yeah, the emerald ash borer, first discovered in this country about a dozen years ago. It's chomping its way northward thanks to uh, generally warmer weather. They were probably slowed down a bit this year by the cold winter in the eastern U.S., but they've become a serious threat to the baseball bat forests in Pennsylvania.
0: And Peter, what happens if the prime ash forests get eaten?
7: Well, of course, amateur baseball is pretty much completely switched to aluminum bats, and some pros have their bats made from other woods like birch or maple, but this really is a threat to an iconic part of the game.
0: Hmm. We pay eight bucks for a hot dog at the game, but what, the Emerald Ash Borers get to eat for free on Big League Baseball? Good point. And Peter, you still have your Louisville Slugger, right?
7: Uh, yeah, but it's mostly for home security and road rage now.
0: <laughs> All right. Hey, before you go, what's on the calendar this week?
7: I have a little more stuff about eating. Ash Borers eat baseball bats. Politicians dine on their own words very frequently, and here are a couple of examples. Four years ago this past week, President Obama opened up huge areas for offshore drilling. And after he did that, he famously explained that, and I quote, oil rigs generally don't cause spills. And of course, you know what happened three weeks later.
0: Oh yeah, Deepwater Horizon disaster. It's one of the worst spills in U.S. history.
7: Exactly. And 31 years ago this week, the other example of politicians eating their words, uh, the Interior Secretary, James Watt, announced the cancellation of the traditional 4th of July concert on the Washington Mall. Why? Because he said the Beach Boys, the Beach Boys would attract what he called the wrong element.
0: Uh, But uh, weren't Mr. Watt's boss and the boss's wife big fans of the Beach Boys? Yeah, not only that, but the Beach Boys actually campaigned for Ronald
7: Reagan. They were good pals with Nancy Reagan, the First Lady. And by the following July 4th, and following a few more gaffes by James Watt, he was gone as Interior Secretary, and the Beach Boys were back performing on the 4th of July.
0: Making a good vibration, huh?
7: Absolutely.
0: Peter Dykstra is publisher of environmentalhealthnews.org and thedailyclimate.org. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time today.
7: Thanks a lot, Steve. We'll talk to you soon.
0: There's nothing like real maple syrup on a pancake or waffle. And these days, technology has boosted the yields of sugar maples as long as the weather cooperates. Sugar bush owners in the northeastern Canada are finding the weather more and more erratic, with record cold followed by record heat, gyrations that interrupt the flow of sap. And thanks to warming, the sugaring season is already about 10% shorter than it was a few decades ago. Also, long-term federal climate predictions suggest rising temperatures could wipe out most northeastern maple groves by next century. But right now, producers aren't too worried, as maple syrup prices are high, and in many places, the sap is flowing just fine. Julie Grant of the public radio program The Allegheny Front has our story.
9: Jason Blotcher's livelihood each year largely depends on the weather in February and March. He's the third generation in his family to run Milroy Maple Farms in Somerset County on Pennsylvania's southern border just a few miles from Maryland.
2: You can't uh, outguess Mother Nature, and she controls everything in this business.
9: It takes warm days and cold nights to get sap flowing through a sugar maple. They start drilling tap holes in the trees when daytime temperatures get in the 40s and nights are still below freezing. When Blotcher was a kid, they would tap in late February and early March. But he says that's changed in the past 10 years. Now they usually tap earlier, as much as a month earlier, and the timing is more erratic. Like most producers, Blotcher remembers the winter of 2012 when there was a thick layer of snow in his maple forest. And then right as Syruping was starting temperature shot up into the 80s. It was the warmest March on record.
2: So we went from fighting our way through three or four feet of snow in anticipation of a very good season because of that heavy snowpack to one of our poorest seasons we have on record because we had such a drastic change in the weather from cold deep snow to too warm and that you know in a matter of two weeks to three weeks it ruined our season.
9: Milroy Farms wasn't alone. U.S. Syrup production was down as much as 40 percent in 2012. Erratic years like that aren't a surprise to Dave Cleves. He's the climate change advisor at the U.S. Forest Service, which means he's often the bearer of bad news.
6: God, in this job I'm in, man, people like this. They hate to see me coming, you know. They're, they run like hell. And-
9: About 15 years ago, the Forest Service published what's called the Climate Change Tree Atlas, and what it found didn't look good for sugar maples in the Northeast.
6: We will see gradually disappear uh, or become less prominent.
9: Cleves says southern Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Maryland are on the southern edge of large-scale maple syrup production. He says as the climate changes, they're the first places that will have troubles with maple trees. Because
6: there are other more aggressive and adapted southern species that are always there, ready to take off and regenerate.
9: Milroy Farms owner Jason Blotcher says his maple grove grows along Mount Davis, the highest point in Pennsylvania, which gives trees the colder temperatures they like. So he doesn't get too worked up about climate change.
2: Oh you hear about that all the time you know and and the global warming and but I think that sugar maple is a very hardy tree and very adaptable so I think under slight changes and so forth it'll adapt.
9: And some of the top maple syrup researchers in Vermont and New York agree with him. Temperatures in the Northeast already have risen an average of 2 degrees Fahrenheit since 1970, and they say maple syrup production is going gangbusters. Blotcher is like most producers these days. He uses vacuum tubing to pull sap from the maple trees. This, coupled with other technologies, allows him to double production in half the time it took his parents. Michael Farrell is a maple syrup expert at Cornell University and he runs a sugar bush in northern New York. In his book, The Sugar Maker's Companion, he says newer forest models, which take factors other than climate into account, show that things don't look as bad as the Forest Service predictions. Farrell says his own PhD research looking at maple trees in the forest mix backs that up.
8: We're not getting replaced by oaks and hickories up here in the Northeast. It's very unlikely that that's going to happen. And, you know, the foresters down in the mid-Atlantic, Midwest, where there's a lot of oak and hickory, you know, they're concerned that uh, they're not not getting the regeneration of oak and hickory. And they consider, a lot of them consider uh, sugar and red maple invasive species down there.
9: But that's not what the Forest Service is seeing in the long term, 85 years from now, in the time frame of a tree's life. Dave Cleaves says maple producers and researchers may be experiencing good times now. Trees aren't falling over and dying. But Forest Service studies that look at changes in the woodlands every few years don't find many maple saplings in the Northeast. When
6: they actually get down on the ground and count the seedlings by species, then they get an idea of, well, what is the future forest likely to look like because we're looking at the babies here.
9: Cornell researcher Michael Farrell says the biggest danger to young sugar maples is deer, which can eat the saplings. And syrup producers like Jason Blocher are more concerned about invasive insects like the Asian longhorn beetle than warming temperatures. But the Forest Service's Dave Cleave says problems like these are intertwined with climate change.
6: It's not just the changing climate itself that impacts, it works through these stresses that are already there. Say it's moisture stress on the forest if it gets too dry. Or if it gets wetter and moister, and that's more conducive to insect and disease proliferation, then it's working through insect and disease.
9: At Milroy Farms, Jason Blotcher says there's nothing he can do about global warming, so he doesn't worry about it. But some forest researchers go so far as to call the maple tree a poster child for climate change in the Northeast because they say it's a resilient tree that might not make it unless efforts to cut greenhouse gases take root.
0: That's Julie Grant of the public radio program The Allegheny Front. The periodic assessments from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, rely on a couple of thousand scientists from around the world. They produce a detailed appraisal of humanity's impact on the climate and what it means now and in the future. These reports are notoriously dense and hard to read. Well, NOAA scientist Greg Johnson was a lead author for part of the assessment published last fall, and he's come up with a simple, elegant way to communicate the complex scientific findings, haiku. Seas rise
10: as they warm. Rates quicken last century. Melting ice joins
0: in. Oceanographer Gregory Johnson joins me now to share more of these uh, IPCC haikus. Welcome to Living on Earth, Greg. Hi, thanks, Steve. So how did you come up with this idea, IPCC as haiku? Well, actually, I was
10: sick one weekend, and I was uh, really sick enough to be unable to leave the house. And so I was trying to figure out what I would do for the weekend— and for some reason, I thought I would reread the uh, summary for policymakers from the working group one report to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the one on the physical science basis of climate change. And like you said, they are very dense documents. And so I was reading this and I was having trouble concentrating.
0: Wait, you, you, you'd worked on this. You knew it was supposed to be there and you, <laughs> and you couldn't stay focused. <laughs>
10: well, I was a little I was sick. <laughs> and but anyways, I thought it would help fix it in my mind if I tried to compose a haiku uh, for each of the subsections of the report. But I sat down and I composed these haiku. Uh, it took most of the morning and, and a little bit past lunch. Uh, and then my wife said, what on earth are you doing? I think. She was <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, I, I sort of thought, well, what am I doing? And I realized that I could make them into a little illustrated booklet to share with friends and family if I added some illustrations.
0: So you're an oceanographer for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and uh, you're a lead author for the uh, working group chapter on oceans. But this is not any kind of official document.
10: That's correct. These are solely my own creation.
0: Any views or opinions
10: expressed in these are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States government, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or any other entity.
0: So these poems basically go in order of the bullet points for the report. Will you read the first Point as haiku, please. It's called History Earth. That's right. Big, fast carbon
10: surge. Ice melts. Oceans heat and rise. Air warms by decades.
0: So that's essentially the recent history of the Earth's climate in 17 syllables, huh? <laughs> that's right. So remind us of the rules of haiku. So
10: the rules in English are different from the rules in Japanese, but the strict rules are of a syllable count of five, seven, five in the three lines. Uh, They're supposed to be a reference to the season, Uh, and the Japanese have specific words for these, I think. These don't necessarily have references to seasons in them, but they do have references to change in climate, and I thought that'd give me a pass on that. And then they're also supposed to have what the Japanese call a cutting word, sort of a transition. Uh, And Not all of these do have that, actually, uh, but they do all follow the 575 rule.
0: Now, will you read two more for us that are closely related? They're called response and attribution.
10: Yes. The first one is response. We burn more carbon. Air warms for decades, but seas for millennia. And then attribution. Our industry has warmed oceans, air, lands, changed rains, melted ice, raised seas. It's
0: incredible how so few words can be so powerful. What got you going with Haiku?
10: I post almost exclusively in Haiku on Facebook. I find that it helps me be in the present. It tends to link my posts a little more closely to nature and what's going on around me. And it also limits the number of posts, which my friends probably like.
0: Now, it seems that all of your poems are accompanied by a watercolor painting. The last one about industry goes along with a painting of an oil rig. There's another with a painting of windmills on a rolling hill. Will you read that, please?
10: Uh, Let's see. Fast, strong action will reduce future warming, but rising seas certain.
0: So Greg, what kind of responses have you gotten so far from this project?
10: They've really been quite positive, but I have to say, actually, it took some time on my part to get up the courage to put this out there. This is, of course, a distillation of, as you said, work of 209 lead authors, 50 review editors, a thousand expert reviewers. So a huge amount of work went into this. But the response actually to the haiku have been remarkably positive.
0: What kind of response have you gotten from your IPCC co-authors? Uh,
10: they enjoy it. I did make a number of little uh, booklets on my own dime and have given them to friends and colleagues and authors and it's been a positive response from them as well.
0: You run out of the booklets?
10: Uh pretty much, yeah.
0: <laughs> What's your publisher say?
10: Uh, I don't I don't have a uh I don't have a publisher. These were all self-published. I can't uh, actually profit from these in any way, because they are related to my my work, and that's just one of the rules of my employer.
0: Well, we're just about out of time, Greg, but I wonder if you'd read uh, one final haiku for us, perhaps the one that you titled Future.
10: All right. Forty years from now, children will live in a world shaped by our choices.
0: Greg, you have children? Uh, I have a a daughter. Who's how old?
10: Uh, She is 17 now.
0: So when she's 57...
10: The world will be a very different place, I think. And it will depend on on what choices we make. We're living in a world now that's already shaped by our choices.
0: Greg Johnson is a NOAA oceanographer and lead author of the Working Group One report chapter on oceans. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Oh, thank you. Next time on Living on Earth, new evidence that pesticides can affect the children of farm workers.
5: When they were seven, the kids who had had the highest prenatal exposure tested lower on IQ tests. They had a seven-point, on average, lower score.
0: Those lower IQ scores and other impacts can add up to high costs for society. That's next time on Living on Earth. Is produced by the World Media Foundation Naomi Ehrenberg Clarissa Baker Bobby Bascom Emmett Fitzgerald Helen Palmer Catalina pierce Adelaide Chen James Kerwood and Jennifer Marquis all helped to make our show Jeff Turton is our technical director Allison Learish dean composed our themes you can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page it's PRI's Living on Earth and we tweet from at Living on Earth I'm Steve Kerwood thanks for listening Funding for Living on Earth comes
3: from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
4: PRI, Public Radio International.